Um, so yeah, have you gotten to check out any of these um, these podcast episodes? I know Charlene, you probably have, but Maria, have you seen the ones or heard the ones that we posted so far? No, I haven't. Where are they? How do I find them? <laughs> I'll send you a link. Um, um, and then I don't, I, I will admit, Maria, I have not listened to the audio that you sent me yet. I've been, it's been like, <laughs> so, I don't yet know how those things fit. So that was actually like one question I might ask you as part of the interview. It's just tell us about these recordings. So we'll get to that later, but um, but that could be a separate episode for, for all I know, because I, I feel like you have a a lot of things in that so um okay so why don't i don't know is that any questions before we get started don river radio we respectfully acknowledge that the sacred lands through which the don river flows are the traditional territories homelands and then i got the respective first nations matisse nations and inuit who are the longtime stewards of these lands we acknowledge that Toronto is built on occupied Indigenous territory, the traditional homelands of the Wendat, Tun, First Nations, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Tonight I'm recording this intro from Long Island Sound on Fisher's Island in New York State, the traditional territory of the Mohegan, Meshantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, and Lenape peoples who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Here we go. Okay, um, so welcome everyone to Don River Radio. Uh, I'm Dylan Gautier, and I'm here with my Marley Barham collaborator, Sunita Prasad. Hi, Sunita. Hi. And we're about to interview Maria Hupfield and Charlene Lau. And to start us off, I thought maybe, um, hello, <laughs> Maria and Charlene, and I thought maybe you could just um, introduce yourselves uh, briefly, and, uh, and then we'll ask you some questions and get into some conversations around your work. Thanks for being yeah. here. I'm Maria Hupfield. I'm an artist and a maker, and I'm based in Toronto, Canada. Hi, I'm Charlene Kalau, um, and I am an art historian, a critic, and a curator of um, the Evergreen Public Art Program in Toronto. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sunita, do you want to start in? Yeah, I mean, I think, Maria, if you could just tell us first, tell our listeners a little about your work with Rivers or on Rivers. Yeah, my work with Rivers. So where to begin? So I curated an exhibition called The First Waters, The Body um, in New Jersey. And it was this incredible exhibition of artists from Canada and the U.S. They're all... Um, in conversation with Indigenous community. And so it really, that's where I suppose the stem of it came from. And the title of that exhibition was drawing from a poem by um, Natalie Diaz, who's this incredible Mojave um, poet based out of Arizona State University. And we've worked together a, a little bit in the past. And so... Um, yeah, when Dylan was reaching out for a local collaborator, he connected with me. Um, and because I have, have, you know, so I suppose at the root of it is that I'm Anishinaabe I'm from the Great Lakes region. So water really is a big part of my um, worldview in a way. Like we, we definitely, I would say, being from the Great Lakes region, from Georgian Bay um, in Anishinaabe, 
in Anishinaabe cosmology, we talk about sky world and then water. Like those are the two things that are really informing how we position ourselves traditionally. Um, and then really just growing up there, spending a lot of time camping and with my family on the water, um, like that really is a big part. And so being here in Toronto, this just gave me a chance to look at, um, to think about being in the city um, having just recently moved back in the past three years, knowing a little bit more, introducing myself to the waters that are here and really feeling grounded in the place where I am now. I love that um, phrasing of introducing yourself to the water. Um, I'm curious, and this, you know, I will say comes from like our various experiences as Maria Liberum over the years and some questions I've had about our work, which I wonder if you also sometimes have about your work, which is just a question of like, what can artists do for the water? I mean, I think there's a sense that we can bring visibility to it. Um, I sometimes feel like with our work, I question whether that is enough, um, but maybe it is. And I just, I just wondered like, why art on the water or what, what you think art can do for the water? Yeah, that's a really big question. <laughs> uh, th there's so much, right? I mean, my first instinct, of course, is always by, um, you know, and this speaks to a lot of the work that I'm now doing um, with a local collaborator, Chris Mendoza. He's done a lot of work at the Don Valley River. And so it seemed natural that we would work together. And one of the, the questions that came up was, well, if you want to understand water, you need to be by the water or near the water or on the water or in our case, yeah, we're, we're literally in it walking upstream in hip waders, right? Mm -hmm. um, and by having that proximity, you can begin to have a relationship with it. And so I think that's where it starts. And once, like anything, once you have a relationship with someone or something or another living being, um, you see it in a different way and you start to, um, yeah, I think that that's the first step. And like any anything, then there becomes a relationship of trust, responsibility, accountability. And then we start to look at other things like, well, and ask questions like, why, why, you know, why is the water like this? How, when did it, you know, even, all these things come up and bubble up and, and then we start to look for answers. So I think that that's by having a genuine engagement with water, that's where it comes from. And then the other thing that came up is um, even though something is contaminated or toxic or any kind of thing, you know, which is often the case in a lot of the relationships we have in different communities, um, you can still have a relationship with it. So I think that's something about the Don Valley River is that it is a space that seems historically very um, contaminated, had, has had a very troubled history in a lot of ways, um, and maybe isn't necessarily the first place I would think I would want to go, being from such a beautiful place myself, right? Um, but then once you go there, you can begin to to think through think through some of that. Um, and I think that's important too, because that just like people, you know, it's not disposable. And how did we get here? And how do we find our way out? And I think that's something that if I start to think about that too much as an individual, I can quickly feel overwhelmed, but just having a place to start and then connecting with other people 
um, I begin to feel like I, I can find some of those answers for myself. That's great. I really like that kind of wider cognitive repositioning of art as, as relationships also. So I, I guess as a, just maybe a follow-up question, especially since you say like the Don is not a place that you would necessarily want to go. And probably a lot of people wouldn't necessarily want to go. Like, how is your relationship with the Don going? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's been, it's been really incredible. So first of all, it's so lush and green there that I'm naturally drawn to it. Uh, I think the hardest thing for me is when I'm in the water, I want to like, and I'm hot. I want to put the water on my face, right? I want to put my hands in the water. And I always have this moment where, uh, has it rained? What do, do I need to shower after? Can, can I eat something after or wash my hands? So just being mindful of what, what's in the water and being very conscious of that. Um, it's provided an incredible view of the city and a way to move through the city, through the water. Um, the other thing that came up is just getting to know the riverbed. So as you walk in different terrain and being aware of when there's uh, man-made interventions. So along the fishing, um, what are they called? The fishing, where the fish, the fish locks are. I'm not sure if it's the fish locks, but uh, <laughs> you can see these different areas where there, you know, concrete is there, the bed, it just feels really um disturbed right you really see the impacts and yeah it's it's something to get a sense of a a a riverbed where the river has kind of made its space versus where a person has gone in and really just kind of like rumbled things up yeah so i i think it's been going really well and it's a journey i'm not taking on my own so i wanted to be in conversation with someone else and and that's been good as well so this idea of feeling like I want to have a conversation with water, but with another person and eventually sharing that with others as well. I think Dylan and I can probably both really relate both to the feeling of like learning your city and getting to see your city from such a different vantage point, but also um, that very visceral moment of like, I want to like get in all the way submerged in this water, but I know that I cannot here in our case in like the Gowanus or the New Town Creek or even the East River on some certain days. So I definitely felt that um, it was really hard to be up there this summer and to want to swim so badly, you know, uh, in all in all of those waters, like whether it was in the lake, you know, right there on Lake Ontario, we finally did get in the water out there by Cherry Beach, but you know, that there's this kind of like natural, um, yeah, impulse to, to engage with and be in the water. <clears throat> but I'm kind of curious about that from the title or the working title of your, your um, project with Chris, the To Know the Water, we decided to walk upstream in the Don River Valley against the current. And I'm curious about this idea that you would, you know, choose the contra- the contrary direction, the challenging direction. And what's what's kind of in that? The fact that you're walking um, against the current rather than following the current. And, you know, is that reflecting uh, the, the, the challenges that the river faces itself, that you're trying to bring yourself to its level? Or is that reflecting something in what you do? Uh, I think it has mostly to do with being performance artists. And it felt like something that was, you know, um, unexpected, um, perhaps a bit like it went counter to what your intuition would say. Right. Um, But really, it comes down to wanting to feel the water, like to feel the pressure of the water and that that resistance would give us a conscious awareness of of the, the fact that we are in water and it's not there to like just ease our our journey along. And the other thing too, that I'm mindful of is that in the different ravines here in Toronto, that 
salmon still swim upstream. So there's also that idea of like, you know, you always hear about the salmon going against the current. <laughs> um, so just kind of, um, you know, having a journey that maybe might be a little difficult and hard to take, but makes you really conscious and um, pay attention. Yeah, that's that's fabulous. I love the the comparison to, you know, and salmon kind of retracing um, back to their kind of, uh, you know, their starting point or often like where their spawning grounds are. Um, and Maria, one, one follow-up question on that. I know when we first met many, many years ago, um, you were building a boat out of felt, which also seems like a very challenging or a way of challenging um, both the material and the idea of um, what you would need to construct to be in the water. And I think that was also what drew me back into getting into touch with you and thinking about um, your past um, kind of encounters with boat building and, and the history that, as I understand, was also kind of a part of your your growing up. So I'm curious if if that is taking shape in this project at all. Yeah. So my dad's a master boat builder. He had a uh... I guess a problem with his shoulder, he did a lot of construction and then he decided he was going to build boats. So it was sort of a, a thing he came to later, I think in his later thirties, I believe. Um, I keep thinking of myself as like kid time. I'm like, wait, how old was I when he did that? Um, but yeah, later in his life and made some really beautiful boats. So I did do a project where um, he was, he mentored me and we built a boat and I built my own boat. So that was something I really wanted to bring down for your canoe regatta. Um, and then he was like, that's too much for me to do on myself, by myself. So anyway, um, but yeah, so I've had this relationship with boats for a while. And when we met, I was actually reaching out to you because I was living in Brooklyn and having these different conversations about, I knew I was gonna do a performance in Venice and I was thinking about being from a boat culture and what kind of boat did I want to make out of felt <laughs> for Venice? So uh, Maya Seuss had put us in touch, our good friend. And she's like, well, I know a boat builder here in Brooklyn. I thought, well, I'm living in Brooklyn. Should I make a boat from, um, you know, think about where I am right now. And then eventually I came up with making a um, a boat in the style of a birch bark, traditional birch bark canoe. And um, that came out of a conversation I had with Sylvia Plain, who had been doing water walks and had just revitalized birch bark canoe building. And Sylvia told me, Maria, think how you will feel in Venice carrying this style of boat, like this history on your back. Um, and, and that's kind of where I was like, okay, yes, I'll do it. And I knew that my dad, um, because he's this boat builder and he does lap straight, single paddle canoes that are really lightweight, that he would really look at this boat. So I had to make like, I had to be a good choice, right? Um, so there's a lot of boat pressure on me for that making, aside from also just wanting a well-made art piece that I was happy with. So that was kind of the conversations I was going through at the time and settled and where I, I settled. And I think that's interesting because it also, in this work that we were doing together, it allowed me an opportunity to return to some of those people and have conversations, returning back to Sylvia, returning back to my dad, um, talking with Chris, who I'm currently working with, and then having another side conversation about pigment with anung bean as well so 
Can I just ask how did it feel to be in Venice with that history on your back? Well, it was pretty intense because I cut everything out and put it in like hockey bags and then flew it over and carried it over. And then in my hotel or my hostel room, reassembled it all. So it was very rigorous and then felt, I like it because it's easy and portable, but it also has a certain weight. So it was very heavy and I was performing on there, what is that? Some kind of limestone or the, in the area, it's a lot of stone in my bare feet. So it was really hard in the end on my, on my body to do that work, which I wasn't really thinking of till after, but um, yeah, it, it felt, I mean, it was, a, a, it was incredible. And I feel like I'd always love to, to go back and continue some of that work. Cause that was just the beginning or a taste of, of what I was looking at. Can you talk a little, uh, a little bit more just about felt? Because that was something I think when, um, yeah, when you first contacted me, and this was probably, what, like 10 or more years, 15, quite a while ago, right? And at the time, I think the, the reference I had for felt in my mind was like Joseph Boys and your work is, and you use felt um, a lot in your practice. So I'm curious what the, um, the roots of that material are for you. Well, funny enough, it comes from sound. So I was working with these tin jingles and I wanted something that could become a support structure that wouldn't make a lot of sound on its own, but that was firm enough and secure enough. And I, I was making a pair of um, jingle boots. So these, I want a structure that I could stitch together a little boot and then sew the jingles on. Um, and I've continued to, you know, I think now I'm just circling back to some of that work. Um, and it was very neutral. And then I just fell in love with it because it's, it's similar to wood in the sense it comes in different density thicknesses. You can cut it. It's very sculptural. Um, and also because of Joseph Boys, it's in a realm of it's automatically accepted as contemporary art. So I never felt like I'd ever be at that time as someone who's native delegated to the past or delegated to um, not art, right? Which has always been that history that's been, um, you know, it wasn't so long ago that artists were told, well, you're not an artist. If they're native, they'd be like, oh, we don't show that kind of art. And it didn't matter what they were doing, just because of the amount of racism that existed. So, um, you know, I think we're in a different time now. Uh, so that conversation has opened up and we'll, we'll see where what I continue to do with the felt. But um, there's a lot of other things around it too, like thinking about it around water absorption. Um, you know, there's so many other elements too that are just kind of beginning in how I work with it. That's really awesome, um, Maria. Thank you. And we'll bring you back in in a minute. But I wanted to hear a little bit about um, how you came to work at Evergreen as a site, Charlene, and what the significance of the environment and the river has meant for you um, coming online there as, as the curator. I guess I've always seen my roots as particularly circuitous. And so just thinking about my own practice as an artist, which goes way back, because I'm finally connecting these two strands and it's been like 20 years or something like that. And I only started trying to make art again after like that amount of years <laughs> where it's like, I've always been interested in, in an art that either is unseen um, in space uh, and sort of incidental and not um, 
taking up too much space. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that racially too, um, because I am Chinese Canadian. Um, but it's also uh, something where I thought, you know, exists in public space is not inside a gallery. And that was like a huge part of it for me is like things that didn't look like they were things. And they were in outdoor spaces and meshing with whatever's happening there. And because it's Toronto and I was a student here, it would be like interacting with the city in that way. And then through numerous successions of just me wandering um, and doing my own thing, um, I'm interested in also fashion <laughs> and the avant-garde, you know, and very institutional forms of art. Um, I think, although everything can be institutionalized, of course, and is eventually. Um, I started doing, after my PhD, breaking back into the art sphere of, like, um, things happening outside the walls of academia. Um, and I was working at Performa, which literally called itself I think it's like biennial without walls and it didn't even enter my mind at that point I'm like yeah okay fine happens in city space cool hey site responses site specificity cool this is like I'm into this you know and it was just it just happened it also was my return to performance art as well which was funny um and then when I moved back to Toronto I guess maybe around similar time as Maria maybe although we didn't know each other, none of us knew each other in New York. <laughs> um, I saw this opportunity where I was like, I don't know much about this um, public art program, which had sprung up out of um, the Don Valley um, when I was actually living in New York. So I was also very new, new again to the city where I'd lived for many years and I've always like come back and it's presented as something else. And, um, and I thought, you know, well, this is something without walls. And also there were so many projects about the water. It was really an education for me as well. So I don't purport to know anything about water aside from that it takes up most of your body. <laughs> um, and so it was also a way of getting to know the city again through a different context, which I really appreciate because it was a new lens for me um, and it was a new job and it was a new sort of chapter in my relationship to the city. Um, beyond concrete walls and sidewalks and, and institutions like galleries uh, and museums as institutions. So in that way, really expanded, you know, outdoors, literally you know, this, um, this uh, like spatial awareness of space um, beyond the built environment, which I know at Evergreen is like, it's always those two things butting up against each other as well, um, which is really fascinating. And it's, you know, a, bit of a, I won't lie, it's a challenge in this city, um, as I think we all know here, <laughs> um, but also really makes us ask those hard questions, um, I think, about how we can relate better to water, to the city. I, I just want to pull out something beautiful that you said, which is this idea of things that are not things and that you're interested in things that are not things. I think we at Mara Liberum are also very interested <laughs> in things that are not things. Obviously, the boat's are things, but really they are a vessel literally and figuratively for things that are not things. Um, and I wonder how, like, I wonder what the charge is around that type of art for you and how, how it might be particularly conducive to work with water, which is this like incapturable kind of medium, right? Yeah, it's, this is also the way that I always talk. I, I will say something where it's like, well, I'm very this, but I'm also not. And so it's like everything's slippery, right? Um, I guess people like talking about fluidity. Water 
yeah, water is very, very slippery. It's very fluid. <laughs> um, and it's just sort of, it can't be contained, right? And so like with all these conversations um, that are driven by Indigenous knowledge and thinking like, you know, like it's, we have to take care of the water and it speaks to us, you know, it will tell us in the end and it will do its thing. And we just also have to let it do its thing. I see Maria. <laughs> I don't know. I hope I'm not like misquoting anything. Um, but but from what I've learned, um, thinking about it in that way because of industry, uh, which is another name for uh, settler colonialism and how it has attempted to shape water um, and how water is always pushed back. Um, and so it's like it can't. Yeah, it literally cannot be contained. You know, we're situated in a floodplain. Um, at the brickworks and it just it come it comes for us you know <laughs> it's just uh, um, and and there's no controlling it which is also like a word that's so heavily associated with the city and of course um, colonialism and so thinking about that is it's like the ultimate sort of um, non-thingness it exists as an entity but not it's not closed off it's not a solid obviously it will just move as it does, um, as it is its will. Um, so it's it's that in between thing, non thing. It, it's so okay. it's so interesting to think about the um, the ravines themselves as being you know carved out and shaped by water and by 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 glaciers by frozen water over time, and then within the ravines, like the dawn can also be so invisible and unseen and you know, uh, it was hard to find it when we first got up there. And it was, I mean, not only because of the way that <clears throat> roads have been built over it and, you know, railroad tracks and fences have come up that have, that kind of keep you from accessing it. But, um, but back to something you, you were talking about earlier and, and to tie in with something that Maria was talking about, thinking about this kind of role of like, <clears throat> um, of, of making more visible that which is, uh, that which is invisible and thinking about that in, in your distinct practices. I'm just thinking about the visibility, invisibility thing with um, how I had, when I was a child, seen the Don River, which was in parallel to the Don Valley Parkway, you know? And so just even thinking about that, where it's like my association then, because it was as a passenger in a car, um, that I would be like, yes, it's a highway. And and knowing there was a river, but not really. I don't know if I saw it because you know, you're you're small. You're sitting in a car. You can't really see. There were no booster seats, and I'm like, you can't really see out of the window. Um, and that road, I think, for so many people, like, does cover over. Like the fact that you're that's called this because you are next to a river. There's a reason for why this is a, a through fair, but it covers. Yeah, it covers over it. It doesn't. Um, I don't think in any spot it actually covers it, but there's bridges, of course. Um, but it's sort of like supplants, is that the word? The river, which was there before, which is its own way, its own um, road. Which is sort of the commonality in urban planning of a certain era that we're only now. I mean, I think New York is having this conversation. Paris is having this conversation about like, why have we... Um, turned waterfronts into the spot where you put the highway in our cities. Yes, that is a huge issue. Uh, Toronto, I'm just thinking of the Garden Expressway. It's, I don't know what's ever going to happen with that thing, but how you have to cross it. 
to get to the water and how that holds people back from accessing the water. Yeah. And then there's wider other questions about highway placement in terms of like how they cut through cut racially segregated for first further racially segregate neighborhoods and how they cut, you know, where, where they cut through. It's pretty clear what the priorities are when it comes to urban planning, right? Like, I think it's very, very clear. The water is not seen as part of that. I mean, it very much was the waste receptacle, right? Like that's where everything was dumped because there's so much of it. And it's always been ridiculous for me to think that any, why would anyone dump in the water, right? Like it just shows cultural priorities and ignorance as well. And um, who's more you know, where people position themselves as being um, in that hierarchy of importance, right? Like people are above the waters, what they're seeing are saying, the message I'm getting. Um, but I am reminded, Charlie, when you talked about the the river beside the highway, because my dad's such a history buff, I really did grow up hearing all about, you know, the French fur traders, um, coming across Canada and how the canoe allowed for the expansion uh, of Canada, the colonial state, right, of that expansion through the waterways and that the rivers were the highways, right? When I went up to French River, my dad's like, oh, that was the original Trans-Canada Highway was the French River. Sure. The water seen differently when you're utilizing and connected with it, when it becomes a mode of transportation for livelihood, for food, but then once it's seen as obsolete and displaced by highways, um, then it falls into a different position. And when we start to erase our connection to things, that's when they become less important, right? Or less significant. And I think that's what we're entering into as we become more and more removed from our food sources and more and more where you can just like tap on your phone and your food arrives, right? Like and cut off and same with clothes. I, I guess I don't really know what I'm getting at with that, but just trying to have those genuine connections is super important. Um, and I think cities do a, a good job of erasing, like in Toronto, it's quite possible. And in New York, to forget in Manhattan, to forget you're on an island, right? It's, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm on an island, <laughs> right? When I'm in the city, you can walk across it and look at the water. And um, I think taking the time to do those things and to think about, um, you know, to take those moments to to remember, oh, yeah, we are part of a world. We're our, we are part of a system with other life for you know living beings around us at all times we're not separate from it we're a part of that and I think Toronto the park city parks in Toronto do a really good job of reminding me through the ravines they're like oh yeah um the city's in the middle of uh of a garden because of these ravines there's so many ravines and there's so much there and yet a lot of people have never been to them so I, again, it shows you the way that in your day-to-day route that you can be very much isolated from it. Or even I remember um, Dylan, or Dylan, um, that Chris was talking about what drew him to the Don Valley was being on the subway and seeing it go over and being like, what is that green place? Right. So if it's visible, um, and some things can be visible and still not recognized, right? Having that visibility, having that space and having the intelligence to recognize what what it is. So what what comes next um, for you both? What comes next at Evergreen? 
Well, um, I mean, Maria, you can talk about this too, but Maria is our new artist in residence and, and it's uh, Maria's got two artists in residences, these, these residencies, uh, one with the city of Toronto as park and forestry department, parks, recreation, forestry. And also um, Maria will have a space on our site uh, known as the borough. Uh, where Marla Barham has, of course, been to and built their boats. And so it's a shared a space for, like, I guess, experimentation, but also, like, we haven't really set any parameters. And I think that's also my approach in general. <laughs> like, anything can happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so really, basically, through the work that we've been doing together um, over the past, I feel like, I want to say it was three years. I don't know. It was a lot of years of like rescheduling during the pandemic. Um, I was able to build on those conversations around the John Valley and expand it to the proposal that then ended up um, with me being the recipient of the inaugural legacy artist in residence with the city of Toronto in the ravine. So that's been a fantastic outcome and a chance for me to really build on a lot of the conversations that are part of the interviews that I've been doing and really take some time looking at um, place, which connects a lot with the work I also do at the University of Toronto, where I teach and run a space called the Indigenous Creation Studio. So a lot of um, thinking around how to shift culture around our relationship to place and land in the natural world. Um, one that moves away from, you know, you know, when you're talking about the waterfront, that really was like, the water was a site of industry that was um, a resource to help generate or exploit the land. And then now it's moving towards with the landfills recreation, but in both cases, definitely not connecting with this idea of sustenance or, you know, the need of the nurturing or um, how, how we need it in our lives. So, um, yeah, so that's the the stuff I'm, I'm developing, you know, I'm continuing to teach. I taught a class this summer called All Our Relations, um, Land, Art, and Activism. So that was incredible to... Um, you know, take a group of students to Toronto Island and have a gathering there. So it's just lots of things. It's very generative things going in, you know, growing and, and then now to have the space at Evergreen and continue to work with Charlene um, is super helpful. Yeah. Um, this is great. Thank you both so much. Thank you for making time to speak with us. And I'm really excited to see um, what you all get up to in the Don River Valley and in the ravines. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah. <laughs> this is Dawn River Radio. I'm Dylan Gautier. Our collective is Marley Barham. You can find us at thefreeseas.org. Our project is dawnriverradio.ca. We're hosted by Evergreen Brickworks and Waterfront Toronto and supported by Artworks TO Year of Public Art. Our audio engineer is Tom Upjohn. Music by John Tarr. Special thanks to our collaborators Shannon Gerard and Maria Hupfield, curators Charlene Lau. Chloe Catan and Carrie Swinar. <laughs>